Hello, this is Monopole Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is writer Khotata One Moang. She was born in Saroe in Botswana. She holds an MFA in creative writing for the University of Mississippi. She's been a fellow in fiction at Stanford University, and her writings appeared in many publications. She's frequently mentioned as part of a new wave of African literary talent. Her new book is Call and Response, a collection of short stories about ordinary families centred around contemporary Botswana. May I call you GT Khotataone? Yeah, Georgina, that's fine. Thank you. Thanks so much for, for, for coming on the show. I know that this is extremely early in the morning for you and we, we really appreciate it. We also really appreciate this wonderful book, Call and Response. It's just terrific. There's a lot in the book about people searching for identity, about the kind of competing pull between tradition and modernity, about staying in Botswana or going off to the rest of the world. There's a lot about ceremonies and respect of elders and, and all of these different themes that that come up again and again in the stories and I feel very much pinned to your own life. Yes, I would say so in some ways. I grew up in Soroe, which is fairly traditional and I grew up at a time, you know, like I was born in the, I don't want to say my age, (laughs) but um, I was born in the 1980s and when I grew up it was still a little bit more traditional than it is now and so now being older, having travelled, you know, lived in the US for a while, lived in the city. I've been living in Kabarun since I was 13 years old. Um, I went there for boarding school. You know, I think that there is a, a certain push and pull between tradition and modernity for myself and for a lot of people my age because we grew up in a more traditional world. And the world has changed very rapidly in the years that we've been growing up and in the years that we're living in right now, the world has become more globalized. Access to technology has given us so much access to other parts of the world that sometimes it feels really difficult to figure out what to hold on to. Like what are the traditions and customs and values that we need to be holding on to that still identify us as people from Botswana? and people from our particular villages. And I mean, that, that comes across very, very clearly in the book. I wonder if you could give us a, an idea of what it was like growing up in quite a rural area in Botswana. You know, I was born in Saroe and I spent the first, I would say, maybe eight years of my life in a small village in the northwest called Makalamabedi, which is featured very briefly in one of the stories, the story Dark Matter. So that was like much more rural than Saroe, actually. It was a much smaller village. So growing up in that village, you know, there was a river running through the village and we would go down swimming in the river. It was a very magical way to grow up, I would say, in in Makalamabeji. In Saroe, we... You know, as part of a very large extended family, my mom and my uncles, everybody sort of lives very close to each other. We, even though, you know, my mother had her own house and my uncle had his own house and my other uncles and aunts all had their own houses, we were essentially all growing up together. You know, you would go over to somebody's house to to eat there. All of the adults are essentially raising all the children. We also, you know, were a very religious family. My uncle was a church minister. And he would make us go to church on Sundays. So I was part of a big family and I had a lot of cousins. So it was it was magical. 
Mm. Then you went, as you say, to boarding school in, in Jabarone. And it's really interesting. You sort of, in some of the stories, you dive into class and you talk about SRB, severe rural background. I'm from Zimbabwe. We had the same phrase there. And the opposite of that is nose brigade, who's somebody that speaks English through their nose. <laughs> and I guess it was girls of that type that you kind of encountered there, or at least judging from, from some of the school encounters you mentioned, that's what I imagine happened. Yeah, I actually have never heard the term nose grade before. But yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like you go to certain places and um, there's a pressure to speak with a certain accent, a certain twang, as we called it, so that you can, you know, signify yourself as a member of a certain class or somebody who went to certain school, to private schools all your life. So for sure, like when I went to boarding school, it was like a different world for me. I, you know, it was just like I had never met people that had so much wealth. I would say. So it was it was a very interesting experience as well. And language becomes divisive. So there's a, a few times where you mention English. So in Dark Matter, for instance, you say, my jaw got tired of speaking all that English, which I thought was really interesting. And then again, this is a girl at university, she writes, some of the men we knew declared their love to us in English, the language a deception, a second skin they donned and shed as they wished. I love that idea. Can, can you tell us more about that? It's a... An extension of the same idea of, you know, English being about proximity to a certain class, a proximity to whiteness, essentially. So, you know, if you can speak English very well, then you are assumed to be more intelligent, to have more money, to be wealthier, to be of a better class. If you can speak English with a certain accent, then it shows that you went to good schools or that you went to private schools. Or, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, and I think that with the men, too, it's just like, it's more romantic to be approached in English because it's sort of buying into the ideas of romance that we're consuming from movies and from novels and stuff. So if a guy approaches you in English, then you're like, oh, yeah, you know, like, it's it's so... You feel yourself like a part of the universe of romance that you have been consuming from movies and, and novels, I think. Mm. There's also this idea of almost being trapped in this quite small country, small community. And for the protagonists of most of the stories, their lives really begin when they go off to university in Jabarone. But after that, there's this kind of leap into the unknown to, to America or beyond. And then the difficulty of still keeping in touch and returning. And that theme of returning is something that you return to again and again. That's obviously something that you've experienced yourself. How difficult is it to straddle the two worlds? Yes, so I would say that a lot of my characters really dream of bigger prospects for their lives. But they feel really constrained by the smallness of their village, by the smallness of the country. You know, they feel burdened by the expectations that are placed upon them about what kind of women to be, what kind of people to be. And then they, you know, like university is sort of a way out. So they grow up in a village, in a place where they are mostly governed by tradition and traditional culture. And, you know, you have um, an extended like family network that is, I want to say, supervising, not surveilling you or anything. Um, So there's like an extended family network that's sort of watching over you and helping to raise you. Um, And then when you go to university, you are living in a city Essentially, you're living by yourself in most cases. You are going to university at like age 18. You're discovering who you are, you're discovering yourself, You, and you're doing all of this without any adult 
supervision so you are essentially able to invent yourself define yourself for the first time for me i would say that i I did have the same experience where i don't think that i ever felt as trapped as the characters in my stories but i do understand the sense of feeling of of coming from a very small country of the sort of frustration i think that a lot of us feel especially like people in the creative fields i would say where people kind of hit a ceiling at some point whether you know they accomplished everything that they can accomplish within the scope of Botswana but they can't go any further you know they have to either leave to go to South Africa or they have to go elsewhere in order to really like reach the apex of their creative ambitions which is what one of the characters in Dark Matter attempts to do she leaves to go to the US and she comes back disillusioned because she her career did not pan out how she expected for it to pan out it's really interesting the idea of return actually because people in Botswana are very committed to going back to their home villages like you know people live in the city and work in the city their entire careers but they also will buy a plot of land in the village and build houses there and when they retire everybody you know retires at home i'm also planning to do that <laughs> but what was interesting for me was that i went back home in 2020 during the pandemic and i went actually went to the village and it was the first time that I was living there full time since you know since I was 13 years old since I went to boarding school it was a very interesting and really kind of humbling experience and i i lived there for 2 years so the idea of return has been very much in my mind of like is this a place that i want to live in and ultimately i think i really love you know i figured out that i really really love being there I love being so rowe I love the how slow it is I love the pace of living there I love you know the community I love uh, the fact that people can just like drop in to the house and ask for tea um we don't have to like ask for an invitation before and I love the fact that you know you I mean this is maybe bad to say but like you get to know so much about people's lives like people just like gossip just like tell you everything about other people's lives So yeah this is this is how I've been thinking about it and of course there's a lot of tradition surrounding that way of life for instance the traditions around death and mourning and in one of your stories the protagonist has to wear mourning clothes for a year that she then has to go through this very painful idea of letting go of her dead husband but all of that very much bound up into the way things are done it's the old way and that's the way that they are expected these young girls in in your stories are expected to behave yeah I think that in a lot of these stories the characters that you know like the young women really have to figure out what is valuable for us about our tradition. I think in a lot of the cases they have a sort of I'd say disdain is probably too strong a word but they have a sense of like what's old is old you know what very modern people living in a modern globalized world but i think that they do find that there are some certain traditions and certain customs and cultures that that are ultimately valuable there was a reason why those cultures those traditions those customs came about and why they were practiced for so long and, you know and i think for some of the characters it's a sense of understanding that some of these customs you know are they're being lost and there's no way essentially to kind of hold on to them like there's a, you know some of the characters maybe want to hold on to certain customs but there's essentially no way to hold on to them because the world has changed too much but for other characters like the character in small wonders the character that you're referring to Peso who 
it's a, a widow who has decided to, you know, go through with this tradition that people don't really do that much anymore of like wearing her morning clothes um, and also living in the city. So she's like an anomaly in that way that she's like, she's like practicing this custom and also living in a city, which means that she's like standing out even more. And she, she did it essentially because her mom was like, you should try to do this. There's a, there's a reason why these customs were practiced and she did it for her mother. But in the year of her mourning, she has found value in wearing those clothes. And she finds that it's a way to kind of hold on to her husband. So, you know, the the clothes are sort of a, a, an armor, like a way of protecting her against the world and sort of identifying her as somebody who has lost her husband, which, you know, people wouldn't know if she wasn't wearing those clothes. And so at the end of the year, she's kind of having to wonder if she can extend the mourning period. But I think it's a way of... I think she's um, realizing that it's valuable to her, that tradition of wearing these clothes and being somebody who's like visibly mourning somebody. And she's beginning to understand like some of these cultures, some of these customs do have certain value even in the modern world. Mm. Infidelity is another really interesting area that you touch on in, in your writing. This idea that, in fact, sometimes it's just accepted that that's what happens. In Zimbabwe, we call it having a small house, which just means that you have a mistress who lives in the small house that you've paid for. It gets quite confusing when you talk about he's gone to see the small house. What does that mean? But you have that in, in one of the stories where the father is clearly basically almost an official junior wife. And the way that that is just accepted. Mm-hmm. We have the same terminology, actually, small house. I think that it's, you know, I don't want to say anything that will get me into trouble with my fellow country people. But I do think that there is an expectation that men will have multiple sexual relationships. Not an expectation necessarily, but like an acceptance. You sort of understand that like a man will have multiple partners essentially and I think that story is kind of showing the hypocrisy of that understanding of thinking like the father is going to have a mistress and the mistress is sort of known to the wife and the mistress is you know like not ashamed and sort of comes into the house you know does his laundry brings him food it's kind of accepted that yes she is like his other woman and then later in the story, the brother is also revealed to be cheating on his wife. And I just think that it's, it's very interesting because, well, the father is doing it in, a, in an open way because his wife is an older, more traditional wife, whereas the brother obviously has to hide because his wife is not as traditional as his mother. But for me, what was more interesting was the, the fact that the men could do it in a way that felt a little bit more open. But this uh, narrator who is a young woman who's like in her 20s, who is also having like multiple sexual affairs, she can't really let her family or her brother know that side of herself. Like she has to hide that side of herself away because, you know, as a woman, you're more valuable or more respected if you are seen as like virtuous or like sexually pure or sexually innocent woman in order to be considered marriageable or to be considered um, worthy of respect or any of that. Whereas with the men, it's almost the opposite. Like having multiple sexual partners will establish you as more uh, macho, masculine and all of that. But yeah, I was kind of interested in exploring a family that is like experiencing these kind of cracks where one of the characters, the sister, is seeing for the first time like oh this is what my family is like because before then she doesn't really understand she thinks 
the mistress is just like her mom's friend who comes over and, you know, brings food and brings clothes or whatever. She doesn't really understand what exactly is going on until her sister reveals to her, like, this is what's actually going on. So I was interested in this young woman who is growing up in the village, but also is essentially a modern woman. She goes off to the university and, you know, has her own life and um, her own sexual experiences. And what would she do if she discovered that another man in her life is doing the same thing to somebody else? And it really is interesting the way that some of the women in the stories do have multiple sexual partners, but that's something that they can really only do in the city once they're sort of relatively free. And I'm very interested in in your writing about the city. At one point you say, talking about Jabarone, is it possible that she once found this city inscrutable? Now, even with the tall buildings and the new CBD, she sees Jabarone for what it is, a scrappy upstart of a city, punching above its weight, a national habit. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the contemporary city and indeed the country. Yeah, you know, when before you move to Kaborone, we sort of think of it as this like really big, really kind of dangerous place. You know, when you move there, especially if you're a person who's like moving there around 18 years old and going to study, you have all of these warnings, right? Like, you know, you shouldn't lose yourself when you see the big city lies or, or whatever. And you go there and it's like the sense of really like, treachery a sense of like treachery like you really have to like figure out your own values like figure out who you are in order not to get lost in the whatever's happening in the big city because there's so much freedom and so much excitement you're like discovering new cultures you can stay out as late as you want to an extent because we do used to get curfews (laughs) but then when you leave and you come back you're like oh my god this is Haburun is very small you know, so it's really stunning for me when I go back to Gabs now because I really love it. And I really do think of it as like in my mind, it still is like the big city that I went to when I was 13 years old. And, you know, I had all of these ideas in my head, like all of these like uh, voices in my head telling me, keep your purse to yourself. You can't talk to people on the street. They might steal your money without even touching you by magic or whatever. So all of these stories about this city is like this very big kind of treacherous place, a place where especially young women lose themselves and become something other than what they were raised to be. But then when you go the older you grow and the more you leave Khaboron for other places, you realize it's not that big of a city, really. But I do think that for me, Khaboron still has that sense of like a city, of that creative energy, young people trying to invent themselves. So it still has all of that sense and energy of a city, except it's at a very small scale. Tell me about the literature scene in, in Botswana. Are there many writers from there that, who are published internationally? So there are a lot of writers in Botswana. I would say that the the literature scene is very small and young and like really kind of working hard to make its presence known. But I think we really just like don't have the sort of infrastructure or like the support that we need to develop writers that is in level. So I know that everybody knows Bessie Head because she is like the biggest name that people think of when they think about uh, Botswana literature, they think of Bessie Head. Since then, there have been a lot of other people who have published. Mostly they've published within the country or they've published in South Africa. Unity Dow, who was a high court judge, but also 
a writer who's published um I think three books. I think her publisher is in Australia. There hasn't been anybody who has published like a novel or anything like that in the US or in the UK for quite a long time. I would say maybe like 20 years, 30 years, like nobody has really published internationally. Oh, I should say in the UK and the, in the US. But, you know, what's very interesting is that my book is coming out this year. Another Mozana writer, her name is Lutro Samase, has her book coming out later in 2023. It's called Womb City. So it's a very interesting time right now, I think, for Mozana literature because we've sort of been laboring without the attention of the US and the UK publishing world. But now, in one year, two writers from Botswana are being published by US publishers. So it's it's a very exciting time. Mm. Of course, there are plenty of books about Botswana. Chief amongst those in fiction is Alexander McCall-Smith with his First Ladies Detective series. I wonder how you feel about somebody from outside writing those stories in the voice of a Botswana woman? <laughs> you know what's really funny? Like, Well, not funny, but interesting is that the the number one ladies detective agency, remember they had that TV show? I worked on the TV show. I was like a production... At first I was a production intern and then I was a production secretary. So <laughs> I do feel like connection to the books in that way. You know, like I first read the books and I really loved them. But I loved them essentially in the same way that I love like books from Botswana way because like we didn't have that many books about Botswana or so it's really interesting to read a book about a woman from Botswana establishing this agency. I don't have an issue with somebody writing in the voice of a Botswana. I think that we are allowed or we should be allowed to write you know, I think that writers should be allowed to write whatever they want as long as as long as it doesn't like devolve into like stereotypes or like harmful stereotypes or anything like that. I don't usually have an issue with it. And I think that there is I think that there is a value in having writers from outside of the country write about your country so that they can reveal some things to you about your society and your cultures, like some things that you are not really seeing. I mean I think that was the case with Bessie Head too, with especially her book Maru which was kind of like revealing some parts of our culture that are not so palatable. So I think that there is a value in having writers from outside of Botswana writing about Botswana. And finally, Jiti, what are you working on now? I, I know that there's a, a novel in your future. I am working on a novel. I'm working very hard <laughs> on this novel, but it feels like I'm not making that much progress. You know, I don't really want to say much about it, except to just say that it will be set in Botswana. I think that it will be very different from my not my story. So I think it will be set mostly in the city. And I don't think that the characters will be... I think they'll be much more set. They'll be much more established within the city. They won't be that interested in, like, traditional culture or anything like that. So I think that's the only way that it will be different from my stories. But yes, I am working on a novel. Well, I can't wait to read it if it's anything like Call and Response, which is just a wonderful, wonderful collection of short stories. GT, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. That's Hotatanaone Moang and Call and Response Stories is published by One World. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to my producer, Nora Hull. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.